Randy Kay here. We all go through struggles at times, and I want to share with you through stories and insights and interviews with others how much God loves you. He loves you immensely, and that's what I hope you will hear through our interviews and what we have to share with you. Thanks for staying tuned. Here we go. Hi, welcome to this episode of Revelations from Heaven, my guest, Tara Coleman. Well, her experience is unlike any others that we have had on this show. Her child was murdered. She was desperate at the effect of drugs and sexual abuse. She went to jail and she died in jail. The story that she is going to share with us is painful. And I want to applaud her for her courage and sharing this story. And then our audience will be equally as encouraging to her. So Tara, it is great to have you on our show today. Thank you for having me. Well, Tara, I will ask you to start where you would like to start because you are the example of a transformed, on fire, Holy Spirit filled believer in Christ, but it wasn't that way for you. And so uh, let's begin with where you would like to start. Um, well, I guess it would make the most sense to start from the beginning. Uh, if you would have seen me in my, I don't know, say early 20s, late teens, things like that, or just where my life ended, you would never have guessed how I grew up, actually. You probably would assume that I came from a broken home or was abused, and it was actually quite the contrary. <laughs> if you've ever seen a little house on the prairie, that is more to the likes of my childhood. I was raised by two wonderful, God-fearing parents, um, the youngest of four, and I was intensely protected to the point that when I got a taste of the real world, I was completely unprepared. Um, and although I was raised in not just church going family, I mean, my parents were devout Christians. Uh, my father was a deacon in the church. We prayed in front of our wood burning stove till I fell asleep every night. We were, they were in true relationship with Christ. And even with that, even being raised like that, um, I never really knew God or Jesus. I knew everything about him. I knew who he was, but as far as his love and his grace and the power that he has over someone's life, over all of our lives, I, I had no idea. Um, so I went from being intensely protected and stable to uh, probably the first gut punch in my life. I was around 10 years old and I found out through a friend of mine that my father, this pillar in my life, my hero, um, I was his favorite, don't tell my sisters. <laughs> um, I found out that he wasn't my father. And I think it, that's already a strange age to be at. You're trying to figure out who you are, you know. And I think it really just took my sense of identity from me. And not only that, I felt betrayed. I felt lied to. 
I felt abandoned by my birth father, you know, so I started to rebel a lot. <laughs> and my parents can say that my behavior didn't cause their divorce, but um, they're being humble. I know that it had a huge effect. They couldn't agree on how to parent me. So, um, so they divorced and all of a sudden my strict, you know, no television, just Christian radio, no friends over, like my very strict, very Christ-led family went to um, next to no supervision. And on top of that, I was going, harboring all this anger and rebellion already. And that's just not, it's like fire and gasoline. Um, and with my father out of the home, my, my mom had to work a lot. And that she did. And I kind of just got left to my own devices. And by, this happened when I was around 9 or 10. And by 11, I was... Let me put a disclaimer. Uh, there's going to be a lot of things in my testimony that I'm not proud of. I'm going to say a lot of things that would probably make some people hate me there for a moment. Well, and, let me let me just add, Tara, that nobody hates you on this show. Mm -hmm. I can assure you of that. We are with you all the way. I will uh, add the caveat, though, Tara, that before we get into some of these details, and they will be very descriptive and very, um, and some of them uh, quite alarming, is that uh, if you have children watching this with you, you Definitely. might want to, uh, you know, ask them to go elsewhere uh, at this point. Um, this is something that you will uh, determine whether, in fact, your teenagers and others would listen to this, because I think it will be very helpful for young people to listen to this as well. So... I'm sorry, Tara. We're all we're all supportive of you. <laughs> no one. <laughs> I'm more in it as like it's it's very vulnerable. I'm putting myself out there, and you know, as much as I'd like to just hold these things in, I I'm not ashamed of any. I was, but now um, the things that I used to be so shameful of and held so deep inside. Um, like Paul said, you know, I boast in my weaknesses. I, I boast in who I was without Christ. That way you can really see who I am today and, you know, what he's redeemed me from. But uh, back to the story. So by 11 and 12 years old, I was extremely promiscuous. I was sexually active with grown men, really um, really anybody that would show me attention and love because I felt like I didn't have any at that time. I felt like I was just alone in the world. And that was, um, that was what I used to fill the void inside of me. And so as young as, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, I was stealing cars and breaking into houses and using heavy drugs, you know, cocaine. I was, and not only uh, on the criminal aspect, I was just slapped full of hate, just slapped full of it. I was very violent. I don't think there was anybody in my life at all, peers, family, strangers, that 
I hadn't attacked physically or just done very, very malicious things, not even only physically, just just horrible things for no reason other than I was miserable inside and I was hateful. <laughs> um, I was just really, really lost. And the enemy had such a hold on me from such a young age. Uh, so parents, if you're if you are watching, um, please don't wait to talk to your kids about things because the enemy doesn't. <laughs> he does not discriminate on age. He does not care how old they are. He will come after them and start, you know, putting that rebellious spirit inside of them and, and just show them who Christ is and his, lo his love for them before the world shows them otherwise. Um, so back to my story. Um, so yeah, I was pretty much left to my own devices and I was doing all these awful things, um, naturally, <clears throat> not long after my 13th birthday, I fell pregnant. Now, honestly, I'm really surprised it didn't happen before then. And not only did I fall pregnant, I fell pregnant by a grown and married man that um, I found out he was married right before I had our daughter, actually, and he's never, ever been in her life or anything. So that was hard. But at the same time, um, I thought, this is it. You know, I have to straighten my life out. I had her when I was 14 years old. She's actually in college now, and she's teaching at a school. But um, so when I had her, I said, you know, what? I'm going to be the best mother in the world and my age doesn't matter I'm going to I'm going to be a good mom and I was for a while um I stopped the drugs I went back to school I took her with me <laughs> in seventh grade I I really tried I really tried um but that didn't last very long <laughs> that didn't last very long at all um like I said what I had no relationship with Christ at all. He was nowhere in my life. So naturally, um, that sin just reared his head again, and I gladfully followed it. So by, by 15, I was pregnant again. And the only difference this time was that uh, the child's father was in my life uh i don't know how much good he did in my life but he was in my life he was very abusive very control <clears throat> sorry very controlling uh but it was the first real relationship that i had ever had he was 24 and i was 15 so um he had a great deal of control over me but as up until that point in my life i had only been I had only been used for for sex. I'd never had a genuine connection or relationship with anybody. So I thought that this was, I thought this was it. I thought this was my forever. And I had no real basis of what a relationship was. So I didn't understand that the things that were happening to me were uh, very abusive. And I had our daughter at 16, 
Aniston. And at that point, I I really, I, I about to stop. I said, I'm not going to repeat what I did with my oldest child. I'm going to, I'm going to really buckle down and give this a try. I was a little older. Um, it's crazy to think I'm 16 years old making these decisions while most kids are getting their driver's license. But um, not long after she was born, we were married, not by choice, but because he was older and he was going to go to jail if I didn't. So we were married and uh, moved out, moved in together. And I, I really did change my life around. I was so, I can't even describe the joy that I felt every day, just being the mother to, to two little baby girls. They were 16 months apart, Addison and Aniston. And I mean, I doted on these babies. I had had my own place for once. I, I worked at night. I stayed home with them during the day. I was completely sober, no alcohol, no drugs, no, no nothing. I just really wanted to be the best mom in the world. And I loved those little girls so much. Um, well, the abuse didn't stop, of course. It only got worse. His drug abuse and physical abuse to me. Never to the kids, though. Never to the kids. That's what makes uh, some parts of my story so shocking. Because while he was a horrible person to me, and to most people in his life, he was, he was good to the girls, even my oldest, who wasn't his. He loved her very, very much. Um, well, one night the abuse got too bad, and I had actually, I had him put in jail. I had him put in jail, and um, with him gone, I couldn't pay the bills. So uh, I moved out to the country to a smaller place. I took my girls. I said, you know, I'm going to do this on my own with my mother's help. Um, so some way, somehow, I'm going to take my girls and get them out of the situation. And I was afraid that, you know, I was afraid for my life. Honestly, no exaggeration. I was afraid that my girls were going to be raised without their mother. And uh, no matter how much I loved them, I said, you know, I'm going to make this sacrifice and I'm, I'm walking away. Well, I did, and um, he got out of jail shortly before Father's Day, and I had moved out to the country with my girls, and um, he had called me right when he got out and said, no, oh, I'm a changed man. Keep in mind, I'm still only 16 years old. I don't, didn't have the knowledge that I have today, didn't have the life experience that I have today. So he said, you know, can I come get the girls for Father's Day? I said, no, you know, that's not a good idea. While I trusted him with the girls, something in my gut, and I had always let him get them before, something in my gut told me, do not let this man take them. Do not let him take them. So I said, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. Um, well, he said, well, can I come out there and talk to you and stay the night and wake up on Father's Day, which was the next day, with my girls and just spend the day with them. I'll leave. No nothing between us just you know let me be their dad um and i agreed i agreed because i wanted them to have a relationship with their dad 
And I agreed because I didn't want him alone with them. So I figured if I was there, you know, everything would be fine. Um, long story short, uh, he ended up drinking all night, beating on me all night. I eventually went to sleep. I checked on my daughters first. And sorry. No. Tara, they, uh, you know, this, this is a time, you know, when you're thinking back on that situation and the abandonment and the loneliness and the, the, the fear and all of those things that come into play and you're trying to protect your young daughters at the same time that this abuse is taking place. Again, the courage that you have in sharing this because I, I think sometimes, uh, Tara, we get the impression that people, and we'll get back to your story here, but people feel like, well, this is, this is not, this is a rare occurrence. But I've got to tell you, having been involved in, uh, in several ministries now and friends with very, various ministries and in our own family, we experience uh, this severe level of abuse. It's happening today and it's happening almost, I want to say, on an epidemic uh, scale. It is, it is happening all over. So we cannot, can no longer think that this is a one-off situation. It is happening more frequently than we may think and certainly more, certainly more so than, than should be. And here's a revelation about that, um, which I hope if anybody's listening and is in that experience, or in that situation, I mean, and they can't quite figure out, well, like, oh, well, why am I allowing this? For me, and I didn't realize this till many years, like, till I came to Christ, it's because I was desperate, desperate to be loved. And I had never felt the love of the love of Christ. And without Christ's pure, real love in my life, I was putting up with things that I should have never put up with just to try to get a counterfeit of that. So um, I definitely think that a relationship with Christ would be your first step in getting out of situations like that. Once you feel the real love of Christ, nothing, the counterfeit, the fake love, that doesn't, that doesn't hold a candle to it. So um, you want me to go back to the story? Please do. Yes. Um, We're ultimately leading to I mean, if there's an ultimate, you know, you're um, having uh, died in jail, but let's start yeah. where you left off. And I'm sorry for interrupting there. I just wanted to, yeah, wanted to hopefully assuage you and our audience to some extent that what you're telling is, is changing people right now as you speak. So please, let's go back to the story. Um, so that night, like I said, he was drinking, um, it was very abusive to me. He actually, um, like I said, I was 16 years old. I had already been through, you know, addiction and abandonment and just all these things. I was, I was broken. I was completely broken even back then. And this is before all of these bad things had happened to me. But, um, not only was I broken, he was I, I don't know how other to say this than evil. And uh, he knew how broken I was and that that gave him the power to just break me down further. Um, he actually, and I've only told a few people this, 
because of the guilt. I'm actually going to share it right now just because I feel led to. Um, that night I had finally just been broken down enough where he was telling me, you know, just you should just go ahead and just go ahead and end your life. You know, what do you have? You'll never have anything. I'll take care of the kids. Your mom will like just go ahead and go ahead and take your life, Derek, because it's not going to get better. You know, you're a horrible person. And he actually spent a good hour trying to convince me to take my life. And this is the only time in my life, and this is before losing my daughter, that I had actually truly and honestly almost made that choice. Um, and so I go to bed. I didn't. I was just finally so emotionally exhausted that I just checked on my daughters. They were sound asleep. And I went in bed and I just fell asleep uh, by myself. He was still out there drinking. Um, and when I checked on my, my baby girl that day, she was uh, seven months old, um, healthy, beautiful, crawling. Uh, she actually said mama for the very first time that night so my heart was full in a sense and uh well most nights I would just peek in on her uh and especially that night you'd think I would have because I was just a wreck but I went in there and I rubbed her head and I kissed her on her forehead and I said I love you so much and I went to bed done um, was the last time I would see my daughter alive I woke up the next morning to knocks on my door, and it was my mother. She was uh, bringing the girls some diapers. They were both still in diapers. And uh, I looked at my clock, and it was past the time where the kids should have been up. I think it was like 930 or so. And so, hmm, you know, that's weird. Uh, you know, Anna should be up by now. Maybe she's just you know, sleeping and tired from hearing us argue all night. So I went and opened the door. It was my mother. And I immediately walked back down the hall to check on my daughters. My oldest was in her room playing quietly like she did. She was an awesome kid. And um, then I walked into where Anna was. And uh, the blanket was over her face like she had done sometimes. It was a thin blanket and uh the first thing that popped in my head was she was a very small baby my dad just very petite underweight just a little baby but her legs looked fat and I said to myself you know oh my goodness you know she's finally she's finally gaining weight and I leaned down to get her and I pulled the blanket you know off of her face and uh she was she was gone and um, ah, she was gone. And that's just, I don't know. Like some people would say like, oh, why didn't you, you know, pick her up and start CPR? Why didn't you, you don't want to see your child like that. You know, that I knew that that wasn't, that wasn't my baby anymore. That was just, 
Um, that was just her vessel. My, my baby was gone and I knew it. So I just, I stood up and I backed out the room and I, I remember trying to scream, but nothing would come out. Or maybe it was, but I felt like I wasn't screaming. Nothing would come out for a few moments. And as I stood in the hallway, my mom came back and said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And all I could do was just scream. And uh, then I hear my husband get out of bed. He heard the screams. He came to the edge of our bedroom and he looked in to where she was. And he looked down at her. And he looked back up at me and he smiled at me. <laughs> he smiled at me as I just found, you know, my daughter's dead body. He, he just got this, just this evil grin. And at that moment, I just, I ran. <laughs> I, I, you don't really know what you would do in a situation until you're in it. Um, I ran out of that house and actually uh, I never went back inside that house I never went got my belongings I never walked back in but I ran into the front yard and just fell in the dirt screaming for someone to call 911 because uh, in the fighting the night before he had actually thrown my phone out into the yard and it was raining now I know why um, so I couldn't call for help but um, my mom was there, luckily, but he didn't know that she was going to be there. But I just um, I just ran in the yard and just face down in the dirt, just just screaming. I mean, I it was rough. It took it seems like it took the paramedics forever to get there. But, you know, I knew she was gone. I knew that they could have taken their time at that point that she was gone. Um. And while they were working on her, though, I still got a little bit of hope. You know, maybe they could bring her back. Although I kind of knew that they wouldn't. And I just kept saying, you know, don't hurt her. Be careful with her. Be careful with her. And um, my mom put me in the back seat of her car in the floorboard. I was just, I was in, I was literally in shock. I had to uh, be taken to the hospital and put on a lot of sedatives. And, um, from that moment, oh, and here's the, the kicker. Um, that was Father's Day. Mm. Yeah, um, it was Father's Day morning because while he was in jail, um, he had actually found out a secret that my young, stupid teenage self had held from him. I was selfish. I wanted a family. I wanted my child to have a father. But I had actually found out I was pregnant right before he and I started dating. Um, and he had actually just found out a few weeks before being released from jail that she wasn't his child. And um, naturally that infuriated him. But I never, ever would have thought that he would do that um and i don't think it was out of hate for her he's even was overheard in a confession saying that it was it was for me 
it was to hurt me, it was to get back at me. And uh, so that made it all the much worse. But um, so he had he had murdered your daughter. Yes, sir. It's, it's inconceivable and yet you live that and you went through it, Tara. This is the courage you have. This is the courage our beloved sister uh, has and, um, right now. And I think, I mean, obviously the worst part was her being taken from me. So not only did I have the guilt of contemplating suicide the night before she she died you know so in my mind I'm like well I didn't know God I didn't know how God worked I didn't know he was a loving God I said this is this is God's way of punishing me this is God's way of punishing me to show me how precious life is Mm -hmm. and so I blame myself for that and I blame myself for the lie about who her father really was um so I felt responsible, although he's the one that took her breath from her. I felt responsible on more levels than one. Um, so after her death, I, I just, I gave up. I gave up on hope. I gave up on on life my life wasn't great before then but I still felt like I had a good part inside of me somewhere and I still I still loved life I still felt like I'm young I'm going to make something of my life I've just been you know sidetracked it's going to be hard with the babies but I'm going to do it I'm going to make something of myself and um when when something like that happens to you and you have nothing to lean on, you don't have comfort. You don't have a relationship with Christ, with Christ. You don't have a, any peace or sense of understanding of why things happen that, you know, you, you are left to, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to, to sin, to addiction, to grief, to shame, to, guilt you have no protection you have you know what i mean you don't have a relationship without a relationship with christ you are out in a battlefield with no with no army with no protection and um and uh not long after she passed i had actually went to uh, a church service um with my little stepsister at the time and i was just so full of grief and I went down the altar. I said, you know what? I'm going to get saved. And uh, I knew, and even the pastor at the altar told me, said, you know, why? Why are you here? Why are you? And, and I said, because I want to see my daughter again. You know, that's because I want to see my daughter again. And he said, Tara, you know, that that's not how this works. <laughs> that's not, you can't just say, okay, I accept Christ. and you know, that's not how this works. He said, it has to be real. It has to come from your heart. And it wasn't. <laughs> it was solely because I was grieving. So um, I knew I wasn't safe then. 
But um, so after that, like I said, I just, I got lost, more lost than I was. I started, you would think that losing a child would make you closer to the child that you have left, but it didn't. It didn't. I, I can't even explain it. I didn't care anymore. I didn't care anymore. And um, I began to just really, I couldn't be a mother anymore. I could not be a mother anymore. Not only the responsibility aspect, my, my heart was gone. And I was filled with so much anger towards God and towards everybody and hurt that I just, I was no good for her. So I began to neglect her, not in a physical sense, I mean, in a relationship sense. Um, my grandparents actually took her in and really raised her while I went about my way. I was there, but I wasn't there. I wasn't raising her. Um, so I fell right back into everything that I had gotten away from. The drugs, the sex, the partying, the, the crime, the, the selfishness. And I didn't care anymore. I didn't care what happened to me and had any hope for the future at all. Um, ended up getting in another very toxic relationship. And while this one wasn't abusive, it, it was just a dead end. And um, I ended up having another child. Uh, Aniston died when I was 16. I had um, my now 14-year-old son at 18. And I, I just couldn't bond. I was so afraid to love him. I was afraid to love him and him be taken from me. So I don't even think I really held him a lot until he was over the age that Anna died. Um, I was just really in no position to be a mother. I really wasn't. Um, so as time goes on, um, a lot of things happened with my son's dad and, uh, a lot of very, very bad things with uh, him hurting young girls. And so I, he was he was abusive as well. Uh, well, not physically. Mm -hmm. um, but I on my 20th birthday, he disappeared and I actually he came back the next morning with a. An unconscious preteen in the back of the truck and I called the police and he went away for a long time and um yeah so that's pretty much my life was crazy at the point I had gotten into methamphetamines by that point um I was 19 20 years old and uh when I came back to Florida after that um and I had my kids with me while I was um, up there with him. And there were days I couldn't feed them. I mean, it was just, I was in a really dark spot. 
so when I came back to Florida, um, I, I didn't have a place to live. I stayed in my sister's little apartment with this rambunctious two-year-old and my other daughter, and I didn't have any money. I'd never worked. I didn't have any skills. Like all I had was a broken heart <laughs> and a lot of deep-rooted issues. So um, I met a man who had just gotten out of a 30-year prison sentence for murder, actually. And he said, you know, I can, I can help you. I will. Uh, he was selling drugs. He said, if you can, I can't go in these places anymore to sell drugs because they've done caught me. So you get hired there. You go in, you sell these drugs. And it was a, it was actually a nude club and I needed the money. So I agreed and from that point on, my life really spiraled. I was selling a lot of drugs, doing a lot of drugs. Um, just completely disrespecting myself and I thought I was empowered when really I was I was not doing myself any any service but but I had the means that I needed to take care of my family uh, my kids and my sisters my mom um, I had more money than I knew what to do with and if anything that taught me that that wasn't even the problem <laughs> because I was still, I had this huge void in my heart. Um, I had everything I ever wanted. I thought I was young. I was beautiful. I was very, you know, I was wealthy. I, I thought, you know, that's the reason why I thought that was the missing piece that I didn't have all these years. And now that I have it, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm, I still feel empty inside. So, um, everything just spiraled from drug to drug, from man to man, from jail to jail. Um, I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of. Um, during the course of my adult entertainment industry, um, I was actually approached by a man who said, hey, I'm going to take you to Orlando. You're going to, you know, go to these clubs up there, um, do all these private parties. It's going to be a, you know, you're going to really make a name for yourself. I was 21 at the time. And um, I'd always thought that I was a very, you know, smart, street savvy person. And I, and I was, that's why I haven't shared the story a lot because I'm like, God, I can't believe I, I fell for this. Um, but I was actually being kidnapped, sexually trafficked. Um, right when I got there, I was passed off to a stranger and locked into an apartment. Like I literally had to escape. And um, after that, once again, broken. Came back, just more drugs, more. It was just, it was, it was wild. <laughs> um, so eventually. Um, I met someone else. I started to straighten up a little bit and, uh, I had my now eight year old and, um, then I had twins a couple years later, twin boys, um, who I was actually going to give up for adoption. And then, uh, I found out it was twins and I decided to keep them because 
in the dancing days I had had, not many people know this, it's why it's vulnerable. Um, I had a late term abortion with identical twin girls. And I struggled for a long time with that. And uh, finally, years and years later, I had six years to be exact. I broke one night and I got on my knees and I actually prayed to God, like really prayed to God. And I said, please, you know, forgive me for this. Um, just please forgive me because I felt the guilt from that because I, I had it done out of just pure selfishness, pure selfishness, my body, my choice, none of that. No, it was, it was strictly because I felt like they were going to interrupt my life. Um, they were going to stop what I had going on. It was just selfishness. So I asked God to forgive me for that. And um, not long after that, I found out that not only was I pregnant again, but that it was twins. And uh, when I heard that it was twins, I said, I, I can't give these babies up. I've got, you know, I'm, I'm keeping these babies and I was in a bad situation then, but I was sober. And, but I said, you know, these, these babies are, are a gift from God. You know, this is my sign that I'm forgiven. Like I, and I did keep them, uh, Jacob and Jonah, they're five years old. But, um, when the twins were babies, I fell back. I fell right back into hard drugs. Um, I told myself it was to stay awake, and part of it was. Um, but then, you know, like every addiction does, it just, it overtakes you. You lose control. You can only lie to yourself for so long and say that you have it under control before it takes over. And um, not only did I get on drugs, I, when their father caught me using, I, I talked him into getting high with me, which is something that he had never done. Um, and I created a monster. And I'm still having a hard time forgiving myself for it to this day because He's still on, he's still on that path, you know, five, six years later. And uh, so I got him using too. So it was, uh, you know, started with Coke and then meth and heroin. And uh, the meth is really the only thing that I stuck with. I stuck with it and you couldn't tell me nothing. I felt like I wasn't hurting anybody, although I was. Um, so after I got I got him on board with uh, drug usage, um, everything fell apart. Everything fell apart. Um, we lost everything. Uh, and in this time frame, I was in my house one day watching the twins play in the living room like I always did. And they were 
We're 16 months old. And um, my twin Jacob just collapsed and um, started seizing. His pupils were dilating and going from pinpoint to as big as they could. And he was seizing and in and out of consciousness and not breathing. And um, after a long, long stay at um, an intensive care unit, by myself, mind you, still addicted, I find out that, um, that it's his brain. Um, it wasn't some isolated incident or fever. Um, my son has a, a brain deformity called focal cordial dysplasia and a rare syndrome called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which um, causes mental retardation and um, every kind of seizure, not just one and it's uh, medication resistant. And uh, to watch my baby seize uncontrollably and not be able to help him and have doctors telling me, you know, he'll never be normal. He'll never, that he wasn't who I thought he was. You know, I thought that just my happy, normal, healthy boy and to find out that, you know, on top of dealing with this deep, deep addiction with not only me, but his father, um, I mean, I was barely holding it together then. So then to find out that my son is, has some, you know, serious uh, health conditions that require, you know, around the clock care and monitors and, um, you know, I'm having to give him CPR on a regular basis and having already lost one child, I to sit there and have to give CPR to another. I was I was a disaster <laughs> to say the least. Mm. I was an absolute disaster. And you would think that that would slow me down or say, you know, okay, Terry, you've got to get your crap together. You know, you've got to be here for the for this baby and I couldn't, I couldn't. Um, I still had to take care of him physically, but as far as me, I just, I dove deeper into drugs. Um, and, and, and Tara, this is, you're addicted at this point. The drugs have taken over essentially uh, addiction. Yeah. So you were at the mercy of a physiological or chemical uh, imbalance uh, that makes you somebody that you aren't at this point. You are truly driven by the drugs, aren't you? Well, I had always, um, from 17 years old, been driven by drugs or alcohol. It was just different ones. I would just trade in one for the next. I would use one to get off of whatever I was really bad on. Like I used cocaine to stop drinking. I used 
heroin to come off cocaine. I used Xanax to get off. Like it was just an endless cycle um, until the meth, until the, you know, my, my heavy, that was the one thing that it got me. Like, and I mean, it took hold of me and it didn't let go and I didn't want it to let go. Um, I'd like to say that I tried to get clean and I struggled to get clean and I kept relapsing, but that's not the case. I did not even want to try to get clean. I wanted to want to, but I didn't. I watched everything fall around, fall apart around me and I still just wanted to get high. Um, it got to the point where I was <sighs> living in an empty, abandoned house that I had to put boards on the window and couldn't turn lights on at night in fear of getting caught and, you know, no food. I would, I think one of my lowest moments was in the dark in that house one night and hearing my my disabled son, I could hear him seizing and I couldn't find him. <laughs> Just crawling around in the dark looking for him. And uh, that was, that was a low moment that breaking into homes just to feed them. Like it was, it was rough, but um, not long after that, I, by the grace of God, I got arrested. <laughs> um, I got arrested in my, my twin boys that, you know, those were my do over babies. Those were the babies that I said, you know, these are babies are a gift from God and look what I had done with it. <laughs> I knew that they were a gift from God and I still, um, I screwed up. So I went to jail and, um, and you went to jail for, uh, theft then is that? No, no. Um, I actually went to jail for possession. Possession. Yes. I had, um, yeah, on a grocery store trip with my daughter, actually, I went to jail for possession. Um, and um, so I went to jail that time, and the twins were, they were taken from me. Um, and I was actually, when I got arrested, they were with their heroin addict, meth addict father. And what had actually happened, how they got taken from me is when I went to jail, he was left at the house with them. So I was petrified. Um, cause I knew he couldn't, I was afraid something was going to happen to them. And it did. The police actually came to the house looking for him on a different matter and he he jumped out the window and he left he left our boys inside not even two years old um one of them being handicapped and having you know real medical issues he left them inside and ran he didn't tell anybody <laughs> immediately so um it's kind of unclear how long the boys were left in the, in the house by themselves but um so naturally the, the state came in and took the boys 
you know, thank God, <laughs> thank God the state came and took the boys and that was, um, they were put in foster care and out of everything I had ever, you know, done with my other children, I was obviously a horrible mother, but, you know, my family had always, I knew where they were. They were safe. They were with my family. I knew that when I got my life, you know, straightened out, I could get them back. I could still see them, but um, for them to be at the mercy of the state was just a real, um, it's a real gut punch for me, you know? And, uh, <sighs> sorry. <laughs> no, no. So I, so I got so out of many, that. A culmination of all of these emotions and, uh, you know, resurrecting all of these painful uh, memories, but you are, um, at this point, you're serving time and your children have been taken away and, you know, you're still drug addicted. And um, I have to say, Tara, that, that we love you. We love you. Uh, we have the, the love of Jesus for those of us like you who have that love and that not only does he love us, but he likes us, he likes you, he likes hanging out with you, mm -hmm. he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And um, you're with and friends. And he loves me. He, what, what really just, uh, it brought me to my knees just the other day when I was reading about, you know, how, how he knew us before, you know, he formed us. And I said, dang, you know, that means he knew already that I was going to do all these things and uh, deny him and live so sinfully and just be a terrible person. He knew this before <laughs> and he still chose to save me. And, One of um, his favorites, by the way, was somebody like that, you know, like you, uh, Mary mm -hmm. Magdalene was one of the closest to Jesus because she has begun for, been forgiven much. She knew that she was loved much and she devoted her life to Jesus as did, you know, the disciples and others, but she of all of them knew the extent of God's grace. But exactly. back, back to your story. So you have, you know, your children have been taken into uh, emergency foster care um you're serving time right now so let's continue if if you're if you're able and willing to do that uh with what, what happened um so i got out of jail that time which that time um was actually a real blessing to me and let me tell you why um i laid in that cell for gosh almost two weeks just um, withdrawing from heroin and fentanyl, cold turkey, nothing. And I needed that. <laughs> it was probably the most, one of the most awful, you know, physical, just, it was one, it was, it was awful. I don't know if you know anything about heroin withdrawals, but that's why there are so many addicts right now because they're scared of withdrawals, like they don't want to experience it. That's why they're so, um, I can't think of the word I'm saying. That's why they're so committed to staying high because they don't want to experience those. 
but um, I was able to withdraw and uh, I'm proud to say that was in 2018 when I got out and I had never touched heroin again, even, you know, even still broken, I, I've never touched it again. So, uh, so I needed that arrest, which was a short one. Um, so I got out and um, losing the boys and knowing that I would have to please the state to get them back. I, I, I gave it the best. I gave it my all. Um, let me just say this. I gave it my all um, as a still broken person, as a godless person, um, a lost person. I gave it my all, but there's there's certain things that you just, you can't overcome without Christ. And I've proven that time and time again in my life. Um, you can change your habits, you can change your friends, you can, but if you don't take care of the reasons why you keep going back to the things that you did and why you keep falling, um, you're just going to keep trying to fill that void with things that only Christ can fill. But um, so I gave it my all. I said, I'm getting these. I'm not going to lose my children, not going to lose my children. And um, I started doing a case plan. I started renting a room from a friend. I was drinking a lot, but I wasn't doing drugs yet. Um, I was really, really, I was doing all my classes. I was really trying my hardest to get these boys back. And um, who they were placed with, it actually turns out to be something that I know is God-breathed. Um, who the boys were placed with was uh, just actually my best friend. Now, they were her first foster. They were the first and last children she ever fostered, and she wasn't even supposed to get them. And um, she's not saved, but she's a believer and we've been talking a lot and I've been you know trying to help her grow spiritually but she said Tara I've never heard the voice of God I've never felt God she said but when I walked into that courtroom and I saw you sitting there for the very first time that we met she said I heard the voice of the Lord, of the Lord say help this woman love this woman do whatever you can for this woman and um and she has and uh, I really believe that the situation with the twins being placed with her and everything um, was absolutely God. And I'll explain why. So they were placed with her. And um, just from get-go, she had just been an angel, not just to the boys, but to me. Um, little disclaimer, uh, she went completely against... Um, protocols I guess you could say and um really allowed me to still be the boy's mom I mean I would actually ended up moving in with them they're actually a huge part of mine and my family's life um they ended up I guess fostering me too and <laughs> really helping me but um okay so back to my story I was running a room I was trying to do good. I was still had, you know, a lot of visitation with the boys and stuff and was doing my case plan. And 
I fell. I fell again. A couple months in, I, all it took was one time, um, hanging out with the wrong person. And I felt like I was strong enough, but I wasn't. And uh, I started to get high again. And I hit it for as long as you can, but you know, there's certain things you just can't hide. And then I, I fell all the way down. <laughs> um, when it came time for me to, I was, you know, getting close to getting done with my case plan. Um, nobody knew I was getting high, but I knew. And I was actually getting close to getting the boys back. And um, I really didn't have a place to live even. I was lying about that. Um, where I was living was kind of like a party house. I had no skills. I was still broken. I knew I was still getting high. Um, I went to Jenny, the foster mom, my friend, uh, and I said, Jenny, I, I can't take them back. You know, it's not, it's not fair. They've got this great life with you guys. If I take them back, I'm going to ruin it. Um, and that was a really, really hard thing for me to do but uh when you love your children you know you do things that aren't always conventional uh the selfish part of me wanted to just walk in that courtroom and get them back but I knew that I would be taking them into struggles that they didn't deserve and I would be taking them into this lie and just repeating the same situation um so uh they actually adopted them uh, we talked about it first, and um, they adopted them, which, I mean, it kind of really worked out. I ended up moving in with them, and uh, so I still, which was kind of a blessing and a curse, because little to their knowledge, I was still getting high more than I had ever gotten high. And not only was I still getting high, I began selling too. Um, if y'all are watching this, don't kill me. <laughs> um, so I feel like that was kind of a blessing and a curse because I had my boys and I was still able to get high, you know? So it's like, it was good at the time, but uh, I had no reason to change at that point. And where is your daughter at this point, Sarah? Uh, which one? Well, I the, had, uh, at this the, point, Addison, Ayrton, and Story. So I had yeah. three. So where um, were they at this point? Story and Bubby were at my mom's house. Uh, she actually had legally adopted them when I was in a long incarceration. Um, I'm mom. I've always been mom. I'm not even sure if. I'm sorry, Addie and Bubby were adopted. Not sorry. Uh, they didn't even know for a long time. Mom was raising them. Uh, I would see them. I was still mom. I was just not very present. You know, I was there for big things, but even when I was, um, I wasn't, I was present, but I wasn't present, if that makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I still had a relationship with all the kids, uh, but it was very, it was strained. And not because I couldn't have a relationship with them. They weren't being kept from me at all. If anything, it was me. Um, I was just too selfish. And I was so high all the time that um, even when I was around them, I was so high that I didn't even spend time with them. So um, we're working through a lot of stuff now, me and the kids, and um, and it's working. But uh, it yeah. took you. It seemed like um, you know God knew your heart, and obviously He knew um, kind of where you were trending because where you were trending was this kind of cataclysmic moment where you had to come to terms with God. And you had gone through all of these things where you were beholden, obviously not to God, but the drugs, you know, they were your master at this point. They so, were. So um, what, I mean, it, it, how did God not just get a hold of your attention, but how did God get a hold of your heart that had been stolen from you through all of these, all of these experiences and the, and the drugs? Well, um, I'll just go ahead and skip forward to my experience. Um, a few weeks, well, no, not a few weeks, probably about a little over a month or so before my experience. I remember standing on my back deck and I'm still not even sure why I remember this moment so clearly. It must, because it's important, I guess. Um, I was looking up in the sky and I said, I questioned for the very first time, what if, you know, what if there really isn't even a God? What if this is all just some folklore that, you know, to, to people don't go into hysteria when they lose people or, you know, just so we don't panic or have some false hope of the afterlife. And um, of course I was stopped in my tracks at that moment because when I was seven years old, um, I had an, ange- an angelic ac- encounter, which was um, the absolute realest thing that had ever happened to me in my life up until that point. Um, an angel actually held my hand and walked with me in a huge moment of fear in my life. And um, the feeling of that moment of this man glowing man in my garage holding my hand and walking with me just that it was something a feeling that was definitely supernatural um besides the fact that a glowing man walked with me holding my hand the feeling was something that um I had not felt before or after that peace and that love and I I remembered that moment you know duh Tara of course God is God's not real something's real because of, you know, this experience that I had had when I was a child. So I knew something was real. I just, um, I didn't know what. So um, not long before my experience, probably, I think it was actually a month to the day because I made a Facebook post about it. Um, I had a dream and in the dream, I was standing on like, I guess the stairway to heaven. And 
I was pulling out bits of my heart and handing it to Jesus who was in front of me. And um, then he looked down when I was finished, he looked down and he said, it's not all there. I said, I, I know um, when my daughter died, I lost a lot of it. And he said, well, come on, we're going to find it. And I woke up and I was, I was crying, but I was, I was angry. And I remember going outside and literally yelling, you know, if this is you, leave me alone. Like, I don't, I don't want anything to do with you. Like, if this is you, God, leave me alone. Like, I'm, I'm too broken. I enjoy my sin. I'm not ready for this. Like, you know, just leave me in my darkness. And uh, I had multiple prayers like that, actually. Um, so once again, I hit rock bottom. I was homeless. What relationship I had with everybody was strained. Um, the only people that tolerated being around me was, it was only because I was selling drugs. Uh, that's the only reason I had rides, a place to stay. People who called themselves my friends, that's, that was it. Um, so I was homeless and I had gotten pulled over going to deliver drugs to somebody. And, um, I got arrested naturally and, um, they, I wasn't padded down well, there wasn't a man. So they put me into the car and they took me, um, to the jail where I was to be patted down by a female. And as I was sitting in the back of the cop car, <clears throat> um, okay, I had, I had a package of seven and a half grams of pure methamphetamine wrapped up, sealed tight. And then I had some personal, like in a little container. I said, well, you know, I obviously can't, put this anywhere else, they're going to find it. Um, so I made the choice to swallow it. I don't know how I did it. I threw up a little, um, I almost choked, but I got it down while they were outside of the car. And then um, the rest, the small bit, I just dumped in my mouth. And I was like, <laughs> in my mind, I'm thinking everything's going to be fine. Um, going to come out in a few days not only am I going to avoid you know this hefty prison sentence because I'm already a convicted felon already got drug charges you know if they catch me with this much um I'm going to go away for for a long time so um I swallowed it and I'm thinking worst case scenario or you know best case scenario in a few days it's going to come out and I'm going to be have drugs in my cell you know, be able to get high in jail while I'm here. So um, that was my mindset. Um, they found out. <laughs> they watched uh, the video of me in the cop car and they found out. Oh, they, did, they didn't know what it was. Um, they sent me to the hospital right when I had gotten arrested uh, because I'd also swallowed a lot of downers. And, um, you know, hospital said she'd, She's fine. You know, let her sleep it off. I 
lied about the amount that it was and what it was. Um, they sent me back to the jail. I did end up getting another charge. So, um, and this is in the height of COVID. So the cells that we were in were, it was a quarantine dorm. So you're in that cell for 23 hours out of the day. You know, they'll walk by and look at you and, and that's it. Um, so for the first, I want to say, three days, I didn't even move out of my bunk. I was sleeping off um, the pills that I had taken. And at that point, I probably hadn't slept in, you know, close to a week. So I was just, I was out. And uh, on the third night, I, I had a dream. And I say dream, but it was, it was something else. Yes, I was asleep, but it was, it had authority to it. And um, since I've gotten out and I've read the Bible and I, I used to think, you know, God, you know, God gave so-and-so a dream in the Bible. Why would they just hop up and act on this dream? Why are dreams taken so seriously in the Bible? You know, I never really understood it until it happened to me. So I have this dream and I'm laying in a hospital bed and there's a doctor at the foot of my bed holding like a x-ray or something. And he had a real serious look on his face and he said, it is, you know, if you hadn't have come in right when you did, um, you wouldn't have ever woken up. You would have died throughout the night and um, no question, no doubt about it. You would have just instantly died throughout the night. And I popped up from that dream and I, I can't explain it. I, I can't explain it. And I wasn't thinking God at this moment. I wasn't, I, I didn't know where this dream came from, but I'm thinking like, maybe this is just something that happens before you die. Like, but so I, what is I, the dream I, about Tara? What is, what are you dreaming? I was laying in a hospital bed and there was a doctor at the foot of it. And he said that the package had, um, it gotten hit, that it had gotten stuck inside of me and that I was going to internally bleed. I was going to, I wouldn't have made it through the night. I wouldn't have even woken up from the sleep that I was in at that moment if I hadn't have come in and got help. So, and that was the dream. And I, I woke up, I popped. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. So that was the doctor coming in and saying that was all a dream then. Yes. Yes. This is the dream that I had the ah. third night in that cell. So I, and this is I in the popped. cell that you're having this dream of the doctor saying you wouldn't have survived. Yes, sir. Yes, ah. sir. So I, I pop up out of this, out of this dream and immediately there was no hesitation no what just happened what was it none of that i said i'm going to die i i'm going to die and it was like um there was no question about it it was um it was authoritative it was just something inside of me like i knew that i was going to die and that it was a 
a time sensitive situation. I felt like there was a a stopwatch on the wall counting down until I died. And then I said, oh my, you know, I'm stuck in the cell. How am I going to get help? Like I've been in jail a lot. I know how these things go. You fill out a form and it can be three months down the road. They see you like, how am I going to get help? How am I going to get out of the cell or before I die in here? So um, I started banging and banging and banging on my cell until a guard came and I played like I couldn't breathe. I played like I was having a heart attack. I did whatever I had to do to get out of that cell and get help. And um, so when they took me, they came and they did too. And they took me downstairs to the, I guess the nurse's office there. And I came clean about um, how much drugs I had swallowed, what they were. I, at that point, I, I didn't care about prison anymore. I would rather go to prison than die in jail. So I was honest with them. And um, so they transported me to a trauma unit, all shackled, whole time. Um, I spent the next 16 hours shackled to a hospital bed. And I mean, they ran every test imaginable on me. I had GI tests, I had you know, sonograms, x-rays, blood work, um, you name it. I had every testing imaginable. And at the end of that trip, um, I think 16 hours or so later, uh, the doctor comes in and he says, you know, it's it's not stuck, it's not lodged, it's actually in your lower intestine, and um, don't take anything to help it come out, just, just let it pass naturally, and you should, you should be fine, and when I say it was about a 45-minute ride back to the jail from this hospital, when I tell you that I was so angry and I was just second guessing myself. I said, beating myself up. I said, you know, here you are thinking this is some, you know, spiritual thing like of authority that you're going to die. Now you've just set yourself up for a prison sentence. Basically, I was, I was mad. <laughs> um, all for nothing. So you've acted on this dream hastily. Um, it was probably just a, a crazy dream from the drugs. Like I was make come up with all these excuses to beat myself up. So I get back to the jail and they put me in a right up front in the busy booking area, stark opposite from the quarantine cells that I had been in. And um, I said, can I, the booking area is pretty busy. There's a little flap in the window where they come by every 15 minutes and have to look in on you and check on you. So I asked for a lunch tray because I had been, you know, in this hospital all night. And um, then, you know, can I have lunch? I've been at this hospital. I've missed breakfast. I've missed lunch. Or it might have just been breakfast. I don't remember. But they gave me my food, put me in that cell, 
and I lost my life. That was the the last memory I had before resuscitation is walking into that booking cell. Um, the craziest thing, I don't, I don't remember anything. I didn't feel ill. I didn't feel dizzy. I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel myself going down. Nothing. It was just walking that cell and then boom, the next moment, I'm the lieutenant is on top of me and I don't know how long I had been um, dead or unconscious at that point. I'm going to guess somewhere in between 15 minutes to unconscious probably. Um, my theory is that that's when I was really laying there dying or else they wouldn't have been able to bring me back for that minute they did. Um, so the next moment, the lieutenant is on top of me straddled me and I can just see legs around me all these people standing around me and she is um they've got my shirt pulled up and they're doing a sternum rub like rubbing their knuckles all on my my chest only I couldn't feel it and she was breaking a sweat doing um CPR on me only I couldn't feel it and um and I mean, she was sweating. So then uh, the nurse came and knelt beside her and they gave me, they narcaned me nine times, which is three over what they're supposed to, um, because they didn't know if it was heroin in my system, which it wasn't. So the narcan didn't help. Um, so they narcaned me all these times, nothing. She was doing chest compressions on me. I don't know how long before. I showed up before I came back and saw her doing it. Um, and you were you were seeing these things, Tara, as she was doing yes, this? Yes. You had my like, very, like an out-of-body? Uh, no, that's the thing. I was still in my position. I was still in my viewpoint um, while they're doing these things. My viewpoint, mind you, I could see. I could I'm, I could see. I could hear. But I, I couldn't feel anything at all um like nothing and uh so she's doing these chest compressions on me the lieutenant of all people and i remember the only thing i really remember her saying was breathe tara breathe come on breathe don't die on us breathe breathe think about your babies um because i had spoken with her before the transport and i was telling her about my kids and stuff and um she said, breathe, breathe, breathe. Think about your babies. And I remember thinking, I'm like, what are they talking about? I am breathing. Like, I'm not out of breath at all. Like, how, why are they telling me to breathe? You know, you'd think if they're telling you to breathe, that you'd be out of breath. But I wasn't. Um, and it's at that moment that I hear a voice. And... I don't know how to explain how I knew the difference. You can you can tell. It was nobody in this room. It was a voice in my left ear um, saying in a very, I mean, a voice like, like caramel, like just a rich, just soothing, 
voice. He said, you know, um, come with me. Uh, you're tired. Your soul is tired. Look at, you know, just say, and not in a mean way, not in a, in a way to make me feel bad, but just the way to convince me like, Hey, you know, and literally the words he said were come with me. You know, I can, I can give you rest. It's dark. It's peaceful. It's warm. It's quiet. Like I can give you rest. I can give you peace. You know, your soul needs, your soul needs rest. Um, and I, I focus back to the scene above me and they're still working on me. And, um, you know, it hit me. I had made a mess of my life. You know, at that point I said, you know, I don't know where, where we're going. Um, but anywhere is better than here. If I go back up there, you know, I don't have anything, nothing, not even, um, I don't even have myself anymore and I'm going to prison. Like my kids are better off. I just, I, I've made a mess of my life and I didn't see any way of fixing it. Um, I didn't think I'd ever have the motivation or the want to fix it or if I even could. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You know, I, I don't have anything left up here. And uh, let me clarify that this voice that I'm hearing in my ear, of course, I think it's God, you know, um, it doesn't dawn on me that I'm dying yet, but of course, I, I think this is God, somebody offering, you know, me to go somewhere other than where I'm at right now, like it has to be God, right? Um, so I, and this part, I don't quite understand myself, because I know it's, um, it's different for everybody who's had a near-death experience, I guess. But and then she started saying, you know, breathe here, breathe. And at that moment, I realized that I was given the choice right then. Either I could breathe or I could let go. Yes, I was given the choice. Like, so in a way, I chose to die, um, to continue dying, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I chose to let go. And uh, so I said, okay. I just said, okay. Okay. And the moment that I made that decision in my mind, the scene above me just got further and further and further and further away. Um, like I was drifting down. I wasn't floating around the top of the room. I wasn't looking down at my body from um, a different perspective. I was falling like deeper into myself. And um, when I got to where I could hardly see the scene above me anymore and them all standing up, the I watched the lieutenant stand up, take her black gloves off, roll them up into a ball and shake her head and say she's gone. And um, yeah, so that was the initial dying part or letting go, as I call it. Um, in the next moment, uh, and the reason that I've been reluctant on sharing my experience is because it's so much 
um, so much different than a lot that I had heard that other people experienced. Um, and I didn't quite know what to make of that, but I guess, you know, it's not a one, one size fits all. Um, so. Well, your experience is unique. I mean, he's healing you from the inside out. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's a deep clean cleansing, uh, the Holy spirit there, but I didn't, sorry for interrupting there, but I think no, yes, your, your experience is unique for, for, for a reason. So, um, in the very next moment, I'm back in the cell and not only am I back in the cell, um, everything that had just happened to me, the, the resuscitation, the voice, the choosing to let go. I had no memory of this. It was like a page that was ripped from a book. None of that ever happened. So in my mind, what I'm experiencing right now is I have just come in the cell from coming back from the hospital. Um, that is why, I mean, for a very, very long time into my experience, I had no idea that I had actually died. Not a clue. It was so seamless because the, for one, the, the act of me dying and the resuscitation were, were taken from me at the time. Like, so it was literally seamless. So, um, stop right there and say real quick, if, if, you have loved ones who you think suffered or if you, you know, have been burdened with grief, knowing that you lost someone tragically. Um, I mean, I can't speak for everything. I don't have answers for everything, but I can speak from my experience and what happened to me. Um, the transition was so incredibly seamless to the point that I didn't even know that I had died. Um, I had no knowledge of me actually dying. I felt no pain. I felt no worry, nothing. So um, just rest assured in that, I guess. So in the very next moment, I'm right back in the cell. And um, the only thing that is different is that I noticed that physically I feel awesome. Like I said, what did they do to me at that hospital? Because I feel great. And then um, time would just pass. And nobody would listen to me. I would cry out from the cell, you know, normal, you know, jail things. Can I make a phone call? Can I take a shower? When can I go back? Like I'm thinking, knowing that I'm gone at this point. And instead of helping me, they, these guards would either ignore me or taunt me. And I mean, like, hateful taunt me, like the door was the only thing keeping them from getting to me. Um, and then I just ignored, just really just voiceless for literally what felt like an absolute eternity. Um, then I, I remember I was down on the floor and I felt like I couldn't get off the floor. Like I was chained to it. I couldn't move. And um, I just kept screaming out, 
you know, you can't do this to me. If I knew that time was passing, time was passing because um, I would notice my nail polish uh, was going away. Like time had passed. I noticed that, you know, my hairs were growing and I was getting filthy and just, I, I hadn't eaten. Like I knew that all this time was passing, but nobody would notice me. And um, I cried out and cried out and cried out and nobody, it was like, they just left me there. And I'm thinking in my mind, and I'm yelling out, you know, this is 2021. You can't do this to me. Like I have rights. Like I'm thinking I'm still physically in this jail, just being mistreated. And um, this went on for a very, very, very long time. Um, 40, I know this is going to sound crazy, uh, 40 years to be exact. And I'll tell you how I know it was 40 uh, in a little bit. But um, finally, literally 40 years had passed. And um, a man comes into the room and like a man, like a shadow of a man. And it's the same voice. Um, it's the same voice that was in my ear when I had let go. Um, and it was in that moment, I remember letting go. And I hear his, it's this man's voice. And um, 40 years had passed at this point. I, my hair was matted. I had this stench coming through my body that is indescribable it smelled like um like sulfur and just rot and it was just coming all through me my hair was matted i couldn't even breathe out of my nose because there was so much dirt in it like it was my nails were just long and curled up i was looked like somebody who had been laid on a chain to a floor for 40 years like it was bad well um, this man came in and said told me that his name was Sam and it was the same voice that told me to let go in the first place and um I said I don't know what's going on um but if you hate me so much if you hate me this much to do this to me um just kill me please uh, I began to beg uh not for my life but for my death how bad it was um, and uh, he knelt down beside me and he said I can't kill you why and I began to beg more so I can't tell right so I can't kill you because I've already taken your soul um, this is it this is this is the end of the road for you like this is this is it and the amount of hopelessness and sorrow and despair and regret like i don't think anyone could ever describe thinking the feeling of thinking that you are in a form of hell and that you're not going anywhere like there is like infinity is infinity is infinity like everlasting 
like no end, no death, no end. Uh, the feeling was, uh, I, that's why I, I swallow my shyness and I don't care what anybody thinks about me. And I go to great lengths to, to try to lead people to Christ because I felt that. And the thought of other people feeling that and not coming out of it, it, it literally keeps me awake at night. Um, okay. So, um, after this, he leaves. I'm thinking I'm still in the cell and I'm not going nowhere. And throughout, throughout this whole 40 years, uh, this is something that I can't quite explain either. My sister, when I was telling her the experience for the first time, why didn't you just pray? And I was like, gosh, I never thought about that. Um, I couldn't pray. I was in a, wherever I was, I, which I truly believe was some form of hell. And I'll tell you why, because where I was in that cell for all that time, there was no such thing as God. I was in a complete separation from God. I, I could pray to who? And there was no God where I was. Have hope for what? Hope comes from God. Like, I couldn't pray. Um, but after he left that time, I, I felt something. And I felt something that I hadn't felt in that all those years that I had been chained to that floor. And it was hope. And um, it was hope, and I began to pray. I stuck on that floor. I began to pray and pray and pray and just cry out to God. And um, in the next, sorry, um, in the next moment, I. And when I say in the next moment or like something else, I kept going to all these different places, but it wasn't like I was traveling there. It was like, I'm in the cell. And then in the next moment, I'm somewhere else. Like I'm not traveling anywhere. Um, they're just, I'm just going. Well, in the next minute, I'm in a church house, like a small, like chapel church you know, only it's, um, it's dark, it's smelly, I still smell um, bad, and uh, my, my sister's there, my sister who is still alive on earth, uh, she, uh, she was an addict as well, she struggled with darkness as well, and she had actually gotten saved about two years before my experience, and um, she prayed for me a lot and I feel like that's why she was there I don't know um but my sister was there and um I'm in this church and there are black shadows of spirits just circling and circling this church house um I mean as fast as they can and they're just getting bigger and bigger just black shadows of all different you know shapes and sizes and um my sister looks at me and she goes, where have you been? 
And I tried to tell her someone, you know, I've been been chained to a floor for, for 40 years. And uh, she looked around and said, what is going on? I said, they want my soul. They want my soul, Linda, and I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, they want my soul. They want me. And they're getting angry. And um, then a girl that I had grown up in church with named Tana, um, she's there in this church house then. And we're actually all um, we're sitting in a circle holding hands. And uh, my sister began to pray. And uh, these demons got closer and closer. I mean, they were angry. And we're all holding hands in a circle. And they're running straight through my body like these black shadows just right through my body but not not them and um i said why are they going through me and not y'all you know what did i do why why aren't they messing with y'all and i was petrified and uh while my sister seemed worried she didn't seem afraid um so i she said hold on so her and the other girl sat there and held hands and started um, to pray. And again, these unclean spirits or whatever you want to call them um, began running in circles straight through me. And every time they would run through me, I would move back a little bit. Like they were strong. (laughs) And um, her and Tana held hands. And when they held hands, nothing. Like these things, when they would come near them and their arms with their hands held, they would it they smacked like it was concrete like they didn't stand a chance uh nothing could get through them and i'm looking i'm trying to figure out what's going on i said why are they running through me and not y'all how come when y'all hold hands you know they can't touch you and uh my sister looked me in the eyes and she said because we have the blood of Christ in us, Tara. And uh, we have the blood of Christ in us and nothing can get to us. She said, you have to give your life to Christ or it's going to be too late. She said, if you don't give your life to Christ, this is it. And they're going to, they are going to take you. Uh, there's no coming back from that. That she's, You know, there's no time. There's no time to make a choice there's no time to think it over um there's no second chance if this don't work out like now is the time you have to give your life to christ now and sorry um it wasn't somewhere in the midst of this um there's a an arm that comes towards me uh with a rag in his hand i can't see what it's attached to but i just i see the hand and it's coming towards me um at this moment i'm in a pew like laying with my legs out on the pew and there's an arm coming towards me down there and uh having you know been through what i've been through um in my life sexually i leave it to me i started to smack this arm away. What are you doing? What what is going on? Who is this? I I didn't see anything other than the arm. And um, the rag slipped off of, he started going towards me, you know, my lady part with this rag and um, the rag had slipped 
and I saw hope. Hmm. All right. I saw hope. I mark in the hand and I saw my cousin. This is Jesus. So this is Jesus. <laughs> what does he want with me? Hmm. And uh, so he held the rag to me down there. And it began to fill up with like a, a black substance. And as it began to fill up, I could just feel just filth come out of me from the top of my head. You know, just down my whole body, just filth come out of me. And I just began to feel clean. Mm. Not like shower clean. I mean like white as snow just clean pure like i'd never done anything nasty in my life and and uh as as the stuff was coming onto this rag the the smell that had been on me for all these years this god-awful smell it became it began to go away and um and as he was doing this, this is you know, like just between, you know, me and him. And it's not like a everything, everything that I had done um, that I had sinned against my own body with since literally the age of six. And I mean, that was my oldest drugs aside uh you know being a crappy person aside being a crappy mother aside like all these things didn't hold a candle to the sexual sin that, that ran my life for so long and um as he's holding it down there i began to just not relive but just remember all of it just like that though and i mean every single like like um like flipping through a book of memories and i became so ashamed that i just wanted to just run out of wherever i was and just hide and cower and I couldn't do anything, sit there and, and, and own it. And then, um, then I felt him and what I felt from him, it wasn't, wasn't judgment. It wasn't condemnation. It wasn't, oh, shame on you. Let me punish you for all these things. It was, um, it was almost like pity like compassion like look what she's done to herself look what she allowed herself to to do and to go through it was um he looked at me like i was the victim. he made me feel like i was the victim in this and really you know they were my choices but um it was compassion that he showed me and um so that moment's kind of the arm's gone <laughs> 
and uh, I feel clean now. That smell is gone. And um, demons or shadows, spirits, whatever they are, they're still there. And they are getting stronger and stronger to the point where my hair was standing out on ends. And I'm back to holding uh, their Tana and my sister's hands. And uh, I said, Linda, it's just us. <laughs> what are we, what are we going to do? Like, how am I supposed to beat this? How am I supposed to, you know, get away from this? It's only us three. And it was at that moment that, you know, my sister looked behind her and I began, I looked back and in these pews, you could just see spirits, just full of spirits of people praying. And um, just sitting there bowed with their heads praying. So when I tell you that the power of prayer is real, um, even in situations you might not even be knowing what you're praying for, but you could be helping someone that was experiencing what I was in that moment. Prayer is powerful. So when um, you were saying these prayers in the in the pews, church pews, do you think those were people's? The, when you say spirits, those were the spirits of people praying for you? I, I mean, maybe not for me, because I don't know who would have been praying for me at that moment. And nothing registered. Like, I didn't recognize anybody. Um I didn't even see faces. I just saw, you know, just tops of heads and foreheads just praying. Um, just praying. And uh, I don't know, that moment really touched me. So, like, all the times where I'm like, Lord, I pray for everybody lost, you know, and I think that my prayers aren't being answered or that my prayers aren't being heard. Like, there's a whole spiritual realm that is very, very real. And um, I always have to keep reminding myself of that, that even if they're not, you know, answered the way you want or if you don't see the outcome, prayers are powerful. But um, I have been awoken sometimes and others have uh, said the same. And I don't even know who I'm praying for. You know, that doesn't have to be somebody that knows us. I mean, sometimes in the middle of the night, the Lord has woken me and said, okay, pray for this person, I have no idea for whom I'm praying, but I'm praying for that person and God knows. So you are you are there still in this moment in this spiritual space. The demonic is still there circling you. You've been cleansed by Jesus. He's cleansed you of yes, all this. And, uh, but you still have the demonic influence and you're still now, uh, you know, probably clinically dead. Um, so what, what's happening? You see these people uh, praying for you. Um, in these pews. So in the next moment, that's in or next. Um, so they're getting stronger and bigger and closer to the point where I'm barely holding on to their hands. It's just my hands and theirs. I'm getting, you know, pulled away. And my sister, again, she looks at me and she says, Tara, there's no time. You have to make that choice now. And I think in this part of my experience, it's a prime example about how, um, how powerful not only God is, but how powerful sin is. Um, I knew that when I made that choice to give my life to Christ in that moment, um, a literal life and death moment, and I still had trouble. 
um, I was seeing the spiritual realm. I had just had been touched by the hand of Jesus and I was still hanging on to my sin because it's all I had ever known. It's I had never known um, a righteous life. I'd never known a decent life. I had never been a decent person. Uh, and I didn't want to let go even in that moment. And um, my sister said, you have to make that choice. You have, you have to give your life to Christ now. And I mean, this was a very like high stress situation. This is like a conversation. This is a, something's about to happen if you don't one way or the other. And, um, so I just said, okay, like, like jumping in cold water. I said, okay, I'll do it. And in that moment, everything else disappeared and it was just me and this, you know, I don't even want to call it a light because it's so much more than that. It, it's someone, it was love, it was, I mean, people say love and, oh, you know, it's just this overwhelming love, which it is, but I think as people who haven't had a near-death experience, um, or haven't felt the intense love of God, which, you know, is overwhelming when you're out of your body. Um, when we say, oh, it was this overwhelming love, you know, we, as humans, we have um, kind of put a bad name to love, especially people that have been abused, um, especially people that have been deprived of love or have a wrong idea of what love is. So I don't think that's a a great explanation for what I was experiencing in this moment, but I was, um, I was up. I wasn't, you know, sitting down anymore in this church. I wasn't in this church anymore. I was just in this beautiful presence. And the best way I can, I don't see anything else, but almost like a, like a, like a soft rainbow, like the brightest one you've ever seen, bright as the sun, but soft to your eyes. And um, I felt like I had been there before. Wherever I was, I felt like I had been there before. I didn't feel like this was something that I was experiencing for the first time. I felt like, oh yeah, you know, I remember this, this is, this is home this is what it's all about and it's not about and it made everything here seem like a dream and that was where what it really was if i felt like if one more drop of joy were to enter my body like i was going to explode <laughs> that's how i felt it was just pure ecstasy that's almost to the point where you want it to stop because it's just too much um so <clears throat> and then i'm right back in the cell and i keep going back to the cell it's like the cell was my i guess home base like i would like in the church i look to the church experience this amazing cleansing of 
what I, I don't want to over, I believe I was in the presence of God. That's what was happening to me in that moment. So in the next moment, I'm back in the cell. And mind you, I'm back in the cell that I was just chained in. Um, I mean, a lot of things that I didn't talk about happened to me as I was confined to that cell um, a long time. So I'm back in the same cell. Only this time, I got something that I didn't have before. Um, I've got Christ in me. And I remember thinking I could, I will stay in the cell until, until he comes back. And I don't care. I will have joy chained because I am clean. I'm made new. I'm healed. I'm, you know, delivered. I'm not who that girl was that was in here before. You know, I'm a whole new person. Like I can do this now. I don't care if I'm here for the rest of my life. And, um, Next thing I know, it's dark in there again, and all I can, the only light in this room is coming from a man, and he's got his back turned to me. I never see his face, and he's writing dates on the wall, like a big list of them, and I'm behind him. I kept trying to scoot him to look at a face or anything, and I couldn't. Um, I could just see it was the back of this glowing man. I'm not going to say glowing man like the light was, was him. It wasn't coming from him. It was him. Um, he's writing dates on the wall. And <clears throat> I'm sorry. As I'm looking at the dates, I, I recognize a few. There's, I, I count them. There's 11 in total. And I recognize a few of them um, as my children's birthdays. Um, and the other ones I don't recognize. And then he, I don't say anything. He began to speak to me, not with his mouth, like inside of me. He knew what I was thinking and it was put inside of me before I ever even finished thinking it. You know, I'm thinking like, what are these other dates? And um, he began to speak and didn't answer that question. He said something which, I don't know, maybe you can have input on this because I don't really understand it, but I feel like um, I have to tell it for the next part to make sense. Um, He said, I looked for you for years. I searched, I'm sorry, I searched for you for years. In every prison that I could find, every prison known, I searched for you and I couldn't find you. And he said, I only knew you were alive because I kept being called to come get your children. He said, I knew you were alive because I kept getting calls to come see your children, to come get your children. And it was then that I looked back at the dates and it was not only the dates of my children that are living, it was, uh, and I didn't even know the date of, but it was um, the dates of every child that had been in my womb, that had been in my womb. 
um, I was 11, and um, he said, I kept getting called to come get your children and take them home. So I knew you were, I knew you were still alive, and I knew that there was still hope and that I would continue searching. And, um, and I look back at this wall and I see the dates one day light up brighter than the rest and and it, it dawned me not because I was remembering but because it was being shown to me that uh, and that was the day that that was the day that I um, had the abortion with the girls <clears throat> And um, at that moment, I just feel my arms open and I feel, I feel them. I don't see them, but I can feel them in my arms, just like, and I'm hugging them. I'm holding their heads to my, to my shoulders and I'm just, I can feel them. I can't see them, but I can feel them. I said, can I see them? He said, no, I never, I never breathe breath of life into them. You'll see them soon. And the other dates were abor another abortion and um, miscarriages that I had had that honestly, I didn't even know about two of them, but um, I did get to at least get knowledge that they were there, you know, and um, I guess I just knew in that moment that And even though I had made that selfish choice that I, you know, God gave me this beautiful gift of, you know, these little girls, these twins, identical twins. I mean, that's, that's a blessing. Like so many people, that's a dream to some people. And I, and I, I scraped it away. Like, no, thank you. You know, um, just to be selfish, but even though I had done that, he still looked for me, he still forgave me. Um, he loved them and that they would still, that they would be waiting for me. It, not if this happens to me again, when this happens again. Um, so <clears throat> next moment, I'm back in the cell. I'm always back in the cell and there's a, a puddle on the stone floor, like from tears that I had cried when I was in the presence. And I guess I had left a puddle. And um, he told me to, you know, look back at it. And as I did, I could see a, a scene begin to play in the puddle. <clears throat> I'm not going to say a movie because it was it was real, like it was real time. It was just somewhere else. And I began, well, I look and it's this, I can't even begin to explain what a beautiful, it made Thomas Kincaid look like a kindergarten drawing. It was the most, the most, this beautiful, peaceful, serene, like everything was alive. 
scene and there was this huge tree and I mean huge like bigger than my house huge and um underneath it I could see all these angels and and I mean angels it was just like the one that had walked with me when I was a child and um I see them underneath this tree singing there's water in front of it they were just fellowshipping and it was it was beautiful and I see a stream going uphill. And I mean, a pretty steep hill. And I thought that was strange. But, um, and there's stone steps beside the, the stream leading up a hill and out of the scene of this puddle. <clears throat> and before I even realized what was going on, I began to absolutely protest. And I mean, screaming crying no 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 I knew in that moment that I was about to see my daughter um my daughter who I had grieved so terribly uh for so long and my daughter who's whose death ultimately led me to mine. Um, my daughter whose death led me so far away from Christ that I had accepted that I was going to go to hell. And I said, I'll deal with it when I get there. But um, I began to protest and scream like, no, I'm not worthy. This is too much. I I don't deserve this. It was just to this day, I don't know why I protest, but it was just too much. It was too overwhelming for me. And uh, I never told anybody this ever, but um, I had always, it was a desire of my heart. I always wanted to know what she looked like every year. You know, she got, oh, gosh, you know, I wonder what she would look like. I even went as far as to um, looking into age progression photos because I just wanted, I just wanted to see her up just wanted to see her grow up you know and uh so as i'm looking in the scene in this puddle of tears she sounds crazy i swear it's true um i begin to see sorry i was good i begin to see a, a young woman walking away from the crowd and up along these stone steps along this uphill flowing stream and um i can't even describe that moment uh, of looking at her and i couldn't i was far away looking into this this thing it wasn't some up close and personal thing um she was off in a distance but i still uh my I knew that it was her and I just began to weep of joy of um, all the grief that I had felt and carried for all these years that fueled all of this nasty stuff in my heart like all of this I felt like it was just coming out like all of this grief was just pouring out of my tears and um, 
I knew it was her. And uh, she began to walk, and I could tell that she could. She knew I was watching. Uh, she was walking shyly, and uh, very, very tall, by the way. Long, dark hair, and about the, the age that she would be had she had not lost her life. So I got what I wanted. I got to see this beautiful teenage girl. And uh, and I remember thinking, gosh, you know, Tara, remember this. Tara, remember this. And I said, no, you don't have to try to remember this. If, if God can do this, he's not going to take that memory from you. He can do anything. Um, she reached the top of these stone steps and she put one hand on either side of like this arbor thing. And she turned around and she looked at me and she smiled. And she looked like my mom, all my sisters, me. She's beautiful. I recognized her. I'm like, how, how do I recognize her? I haven't seen her since she was. I haven't seen her since she was a baby. Mm. But I recognized her immediately. And um you know, it was at that moment that I truly, truly, regardless of, you know, being in the presence of God in that, in that blissful experience, regardless of the cleansing, all of that aside, it was at that moment that I understood how powerful God was. Hmm. I understood, like, if he can do this, you can do anything like it really is all powerful and it really is all for the good um sorry i knew i would need this um i asked him i said uh one i said can she hear me can she see me he said no but she knows you're there Said, can I hug her? No, you're not there yet. Mm. So well, I want to go. <laughs> um, you know, well, I want to go. Uh, this is um, almost to the part where I come back here. So before I get to that, uh, I missed a part. Uh, where I'm back in the cell and I'm standing on a road map. Uh, this is after seeing Anna and everything. I'm, I'm on a road map, standing on it. And say a road map, but it's like more than that. It's hard to explain. Um, and although I can't see Jesus beside me, I, I know he's there. I can feel him. I can work. You know, communicating and, uh, you know, looking on this map. And I get the knowledge that there's all these different roads and all these turns, just everything. But the one that I'm on, I realized that is my life. It's like a, a road map to my life. Only I was looking, standing, looking backwards into it. Like where I was standing was the present. And 
I think it was at that moment that I, you know, I looked down and saw that I was at the end of it. And, and it hit me, you know, my life is over. You know, I, I, I'd always felt like I had so much time to fix, fix everything. And my life was over. I was standing on the end of the road and there were, and I almost got angry. Can you imagine that? First I slapped the hand of Jesus away and then I have the nerve to get angry at him. But I almost got angry. You know, why? Why would you wait until now? Why would you wait until my life is over to show me that you're real, to heal me, to deliver me, to to open my eyes that all this is real? And I look down the road of my life. I just sound silly. And um, there were all these little like thumbtack markers all down the road. And I mean a lot. I didn't count them, but there were hundreds um, dating from like all the way back to the very beginning of my road. So like birth. And um, what is this? And head. Tara, those are all the times in your life that I revealed myself to you and that you turned me down. That you rejected me. I can't even. And as he said that, I could. I would look at, you know, each of these little cat things. And I would. When I say reliving a moment, it's not like you have to relive it like minute by minute. I mean, you just I just looked at it and the whole experience was just right back. And. Uh, I started looking at, you know, a few of these and uh, remembering these times and me being like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't even recognize in these moments that it was really the Holy Spirit, you know, knocking on my heart, trying to get to me. And um, there are a few of them, and I remember, you know, gosh, you know, having this weird feeling on me. But when, when your heart is closed off to God, like you're not going to recognize the Holy Spirit. You're not going to, you're almost unreachable. Like you have to get to that, that point of humility. And I had none. And um, there was hundreds of these markers, and. Um, he never gave up, though. He never gave up. Um, so I'm back in the cell again. And uh, there are a few parts of my experience that don't really fit in anywhere. Um, I'll just give like a little brief summary of things that I was shown and experienced and taught. Um, I watched. I watched the hand of Jesus like cleanse hundreds of thousands of hundreds of thousands of souls in a pit with the swipe of his hand i watched him create seas that or create storms and seas that took out nations i watched him create life and draw it and take it away and 
all of this and I'm, as I'm experiencing it, I'm not just, oh, looking like an innocent bystander. I'm understanding the wisdom behind it and the reason behind it. And there's nothing is as it seems, y'all, by the way. Uh, that's why the Bible says lean not on your own understanding. So um, I'm back in the presence of God. I'm back in the cell. And uh, I ask God. Uh, what happened to her, to my daughter. And um, because I guess I live in a really small, crappy little town where nothing happens. Um, I never got real answers as to her death. I mean, yeah, there was a confession, but that doesn't mean anything without a lot of evidence. And um, her autopsy was inconclusive, so there was never even really a large-scale investigation. Nobody was ever truly held accountable, and I never truly got answers. And so I asked God, I said, you know what happened? What happened to her? I just, I need to know what happened to her. And he said, he took her breath from her. And um, I didn't break down and cry. I'd already, I knew inside and you know, I'd already known, but I just wanted a confirmation, you know, so I could really take this new um, acceptance and just forgive. Really, I wanted to, I wanted to be able to forgive him. Um, the next thing, oh, so I asked him, I said, you know, while I was in the presence, while we, if we were communicating, while I had this opportunity, I said, you know, can I please, can, or can I go in there? Can I go with her? And, um, or, yeah, I said, can I go with her? And he said, you know, you're not there yet. Do you want to go in there? Do you want to go back? And I was like, back where? Jesus, Jesus is speaking to you at this point. Yes. He's telling you you can't go to see your daughter because it's not your time yet. But Well, it was my choice. Your choice. Okay. Yes. Um, I guess wherever I was, I wasn't, you know, I guess crossed over. I don't like that term. But um, that's why I couldn't hug her because I wasn't where she was. I'm not sure what that meant. Um, Tony said, you know, do you want to go in there? Do you want to go back? And I'm like, back where? You know, in that moment, you don't even remember your earthly life. You're definitely not thinking about it. Um, like, And it, it almost hurts my feeling. Like, I'm almost disappointed that I didn't even think about my other children in that moment. I didn't think about anything here nothing and um i said one thing and it dawned on me i said well i want to go in there of course i want to go in there and um unlike the other parts of my experience where i made a choice and something immediately happened i said i want to go in there yes yes nothing happened so um and i got the the feeling that he was waiting on me to get something that i was supposed to 
I don't know, it's really hard to explain. But then the thought came in my mind. And I did remember here. And I said, oh my gosh, there's people down there who don't even think that God exists. There's people living their lives that might die tomorrow that have no idea that Jesus Christ is real and that he's the only way. And in that moment, I said, you know what? I know I'm coming back here. Um, I'm, I don't have this grief. I can, I've got this joy. I've got Jesus. I can, I actually, yeah, I want to go back not only to, to warn everybody. And here's a crazy part about that. And, uh, this is where I really think it's childlike faith. Um, it never, not once. I thought that I was going to come down here, tell everybody it was real. And, you know, that was it. The whole world's going to get saved. It never even dawned on me in that moment that people would still reject God. That it never dawned on me that there would be people who don't know me, that didn't believe my experience. Anyone who knows me believes it because my life is proof. You know, you can't you can't hide good fruit. <laughs> you can't fake good fruit. You can't fake a transformation. And um, so I said, yes, you know, I, yes, I'll go back. I want to, I want to tell people. And um, the next thing I know, um, in this, well, before that, in that moment, when I said, yes, you know, I want to go back, which is why I feel like I didn't immediately, you know, go in there with her or if, well, of course, he knew I wasn't going to go there that day. Um, in that moment, when I said, of course, I want to go back and tell. It was like this huge just wave of revelation over me that everything that I had ever gone through in my life, every choice that I had made, even bad, um, all those times that I, you know, laid on my bedroom floor just screaming at the top of my lungs crying out just wanting to die and I felt like there was nothing no hope no all the times I felt abandoned by God everything I had ever been through had led up to that very moment and to me dying in that jail cell and to me having this experience and being able to come back and tell people about it and it made me feel like, you know what, everything I had ever gone through in my life that caused me so much pain was all part of this bigger plan and purpose. And none of it was in vain. And that's really, really helped me uh, with a lot. <laughs> then, you know, I don't regret anything. I I know there was a plan and a purpose for my life before I was even born. And um, so the next moment. I am in this anesthetic like sleep or something like I can't see I can't I'm just I can't see I can barely move um, but I can still hear and I can feel and I feel I'm being carried I've got 
someone behind me with their arms under my armpits walking backwards with me and some one person has each of my legs and I'm being carried and they're like you know whispering amongst themselves it's real lighthearted, like giggling I can't really hear what they're saying until um you gotta go put me like lift me up and then I hear them start laughing and uh one of them says I can't get in there with her get in where where am I going and um so they position reposition around to where there's nothing behind my back and I get set into something like something soft like a I don't know it almost felt like a beanbag or something but softer like comfy they set me into this and in the very next moment I feel like a wet coat of just pain is put on me and just uncomfortable just physical feeling and I open my eyes and I have a sheet over my face and i'm in a chilled room with a guard standing outside of it and um i actually had doa sharpied on my arm along with um a bunch of times from all the times that they were trying to resuscitate me i guess they have to i don't know keep right i don't know but there was sharpie times written on my arms of all the resuscitation attempts i guess for when the actual um paramedics or whoever got there but it turns out that um i wasn't even transported in an ambulance or a fire truck i was actually transported in an me van and that really didn't hit me until later how close uh my life has sent almost destroyed my family um yeah and a lot has happened since I've been back um but I ripped the sheet off my face and I tried to scream but my mouth was so dry and my throat was so dry I couldn't of course when the guard notices me um sorry when the guard notices me he his face turned white and i mean he didn't say anything he just took off running because there was a guard i guess dead or alive i'm still property of the state at the moment and um there was a guard standing outside of the refrigerated room in a hospital wasn't a, i wasn't in a like freezer but it was a room that's kept like intensely cold and um so you so you were in the morgue then sounds I, like step up from yeah. uh, i believe i was just pronounced i'm not sure uh see because i was in custody they don't give it they don't care about you they don't i i was really hard to get any kind of anything from anybody to them i was just a a dope head you know addict criminal they didn't care anything i had to say um i could barely get information as to how long i was dead like what happened how did they find me there's still things that i never got answers to um i've actually had contacted um the hospitals after i got out 
getting records, just trying to figure out what happened to me because nobody would give me answers because they didn't, I was dehumanized. You know, there was no coming in there, rubbing on my head saying, you know, oh, thank, you know, thank the Lord you're alive. It's a miracle. It was. Um, it's hard to explain. I was just dehumanized. Um, but at that moment, I didn't care. <laughs> yeah. I had the joy of, you know, I had just experienced what I experienced. You know, there wasn't nothing on this earth that could get me down at that moment. But I will say this. Um, yeah, I made the choice to come back. Although, did I really, you know, I feel like he knew that's what was going to happen, you know. Um, so, although I made the choice, and that's because he had a plan for my life. You know, I feel like, uh, I feel like the reason, besides the fact that, you know, God's grace is, just overwhelming and that he loves all of us so incredibly much um i feel like besides the fact of that that me specifically i feel like i was given my life back um just as proof now i mean you don't even have to believe what happened to me i mean i know there's going to be people that don't and that's that's fine too. They will one day though. <laughs> um, they will one day. Um, yeah, and, and the, te- the testimony of the fact that this encounter with Jesus had on your life is that subsequent to this, you became clean <laughs> and you were lived an entirely different life. I mean, you were, you were the person that that you he would have been had be. you not been violated and abused and and really fallen honestly into, uh, drugs. i think i think i'm i think i'm better than i would have been had all that had i never right. turned like that because um i have such a strong sense of humility because i know what it's like to be at the bottom you know i know what it's like so the compassion and the humility in me is so strong and i feel like if i would have never say if i would have just graduated college a a virgin and went and had a family and just lived this perfect life i feel like i would have taken god's grace for granted and i don't feel like i would be as close to god as i am had i not experienced what i did you know yeah no i agree with you i think we had talked about before this how there's so many people at the effect not just those who are the victims of abuse and drugs, but also um, the loved ones that go through it um, that are, you know, wanting their loved one or the person they care for, you know, the ones, the best friend of yours, for example, who, you know, was seeing what was happening to you and while you were going through this horrendous abuse, there's something that happens when there's a violation such as sexual abuse that instills a, um, the corruption of the individual at their very soul that is is lasting until it can be healed through through Christ. And that's what you went through. And the compassion, what strikes me about your account so much, Tara, is the compassion of Jesus. You know, 
he not he doesn't victimize the victims. He doesn't the want victims of this world. He doesn't look at them and say, "Okay, well, I'm going to condemn you to hell because you were a victim of this world." No, he takes the victim. He knows, searches your heart. He knows Tara. You know, deep down inside, she longs for me. She longs to know what a loving father is. She longs to know, you know, what that is to have the, the, the total love, the consummate love. She wants that, and I am that. And and I'm and I what I struck with your account, Tara, is that he the roadmap that he showed you each time he just was asking imploring you come to me come to me i'm i'm the one who can save you from all of this i'm the one who can can save you and every single time he keeps going over and over and over and over he never gives up he you never gives um, up on you you want to hear one of those uh texts what the moment was sure this is one that, this is one that really um i don't know why this one stuck with me but it did I was about well the very first one that I that I saw was um the it was my parents wedding. When I say my parents I mean the man that raised me, the good Christian man that raised me that I found out wasn't my father. It was their it was their wedding and um you know I got the knowledge that yes I know that you felt abandoned by your father but he was placed in your life. Like that was me. Um can still, you know, there's good, just to dip my toe in the water of Christ when I was a child and um, to have that solid foundation to be able to go back to and parents that were, because he was really the Christ head of the family. He led the whole family to Christ and he was, he was it. So yeah, I felt like, oh, my real dad didn't want me this and that, but really, um, really it was God that placed this man in my life, you know, to raise me. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. But um, the second one, um, I was um, about 19 years old. I was heavily addicted, heavily addicted to crack cocaine, fast life, selling drugs. Um, I had actually, I was in a car that had gotten hijacked or carjacked and me i'm thinking i'm going to go to these people and tell them it wasn't me and clear my name so they don't come after me um so i try you don't think clearly on drugs obviously um so i'm in this hotel parking lot 20 years old 80 pounds soaking wet um trying to clear my name and i ended up getting uh getting beaten pretty severely uh by men women i mean i got i was beat with almost an inch of my life and um i really thought that i was gonna die in that moment and out of nowhere um the last man that was standing over me uh i was getting hit in the head with a pistol like i i was about to lose consciousness out of nowhere and i remember in my head i said god please help me just a quick you know we say it mindlessly I had no connection to God, but it's still just, I said, God, please help me. And I know where this man stops and he grabs my hand and yanks me up. And he said, if you want to live, run. So I ran as best I could, you know, I was kind of injured, but I ran and, uh, I ran about two miles without stopping. So I hit a gas station 
and I'm sitting out in front of this gas station just trying to, well, for one, catch my breath. I just ran two miles. And um, I see I didn't have any money. I didn't have a phone. I had nothing. And um, I see a taxi. Skirt. This is when taxis were still a thing. I see this taxi. Skirt into the into the parking lot. And um, he doesn't go to the gas pump. And he comes and parks right by me. And he walks right up to me. Um, like he was there for me. And I said, you know, it's like, I'm here for you. I said, I didn't, I didn't call a cab. Um, I don't even have a phone. Like, how, what? He's like, I, I'm here for you. He's like, I, I had to come here. I, I needed to come here. I came here for you. And I'm what are you talking about? Um, it was an older, like, a, he wasn't American. I don't know what he was. I don't want to sound non-politically correct. Maybe he was Indian or something like that. And um, he said, I'm here for you. Where do you need to go? I said, I actually need to go, you know, a few miles away to uh, the suite that I'm staying in. And he said, okay, you know, get in. I'm here for you anyways. I was about to go home. Uh, I said, okay, I don't have any money. Like I said, he said, it's okay. It's, you know, just get in the car, please. I said, you know, you're not going to hurt me. Are you? He could tell I was injured. He said, I think he said, I'm not going to harm you. I think someone else has already done that. Um, I'm here to help. I said, okay, I didn't really have many choices. So I got in his cab and um, he took me to um, where I was staying. And when we got there, he said, can I walk you to your room? I said, and I normally would have been like, no, but I was still scared, you know, because these people who had just done this to me, they knew where I was staying. Um, so I said, yeah, I guess. Uh, and I didn't get a bad feeling from this man. Yes, I guess you can walk me to my room. So he did. And when I got there, all I could think about was getting high. I just had all this happen to me. I had drugs in the room. I was just ready to go in there and get high, you know. And he said, can I come in for just a moment? I need to speak with you. And I, and he was talking like that. Like, I need to speak with you. I won't harm you. And I'm like, who talks like that in this day and age? Um, I was like, oh, no, you know, I really, I, I've had a long night. He's like, it's important. And I need, I, I have to speak with you. I said, okay. I said, just please don't hurt me. You know, I didn't feel like he was going to, but at that point, you know, all these things were happening to me in my life. I just, like he would have told me if he was going to hurt me. Um, so he comes in the, the room and I'm sitting on the bed, rifling through stuff, just looking for my, my drugs and um, trying to be sly though, because I didn't, I was still ashamed no matter how deeply addicted I was. And um, he grabs a Bible out of the nightstand. He grabs the Bible out of the nightstand and uh, he opens it and he starts reading scripture to me. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you're doing. None of this, you know, run to him, call out to him. He's calling out to you. I was on my drive home and God told me to pull off that somebody needed my help. And he started reading scripture to me. 
and um i don't remember what it was but um i got angry i got angry at this man and i began to cuss him I began to cuss him i said get out of my room you know you psycho um i don't know what you're doing ain't nothing wrong with me you know the whole spill um i just completely refused to humble myself i just wanted to get high I, and for some reason i was almost fearful but i mean he just i was infuriated with rage i started shoving him I shoved this man out of my room and um he went to set the bible on the bathroom sink on the way out i said take that crap with you and um he left and i sat in that hotel room that night um on the floor just didn't move all night blood all over me i didn't shower anything just getting high and yes i was high but it was a different feeling there was a feeling in the room that i just couldn't quite put my finger on and um I just kept crying and not tears of sorrow or what had just happened to me, but tears of like change and hope. Like I can't even explain it. Now I know that that room is filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, even in that dark, dark moment of my life. Uh, and I mean, that, that feeling stayed in that room to the point where I moved rooms to get away from it. <laughs> mm. But when you're living in sin, you know, you don't you don't want that. Yeah. And uh that was one of the only markers that he gave me the sneak peek up was that moment in my life. And uh yeah. Yeah. I, I should have looked at all of them, dang it. <laughs> but at least now I know how to recognize them. And now you are that person that came yeah. in and helped you that night. You're that person now on the, on the for other side. people, for other people. You're doing it now. I mean, you're doing mm -hmm. it to others who are watching this and listening to this people are, in my life. Yes. We're, um, I never thought about that. Yeah, it's happening right now. And, uh, we're going to, um, as I oftentimes say, this is the part that, uh, is perhaps the most important part because this this uh, account that um, my sister is sharing with you has shared with you is is for a purpose for a God ordained purpose and you had asked earlier Tara maybe if some insight um, you know he was writing Jesus was writing on the wall you know the uh, when the birth of your your children, the babies who are in heaven today are not babies anymore. Uh, obviously your daughter, um, full grown woman. But, and there was one date there, I think you said, well, what is that about? Um, um, that was the date that I had uh, had the abortion with the twin girls. Um, the ones that I carried the guilt for for so long. Um, and the first time I ever cried out to God in my life was over that. So, um, and not long after I did cry out for forgiveness, I found out that I was pregnant again with twins. So that was, um, that was a beautiful, it's a very important, special thing in my life. 
every baby is special. Twins are double special, but twins after a gift of twins after you had done something like I had done. You know, I felt like that was God's way of saying, you know, I forgive you, you know, and it, like he has a tenfold in my life, everything that the enemy took from me, everything he has just restored tenfold. And I mean, things I never thought possible. I, uh, I had this impression when you were saying that, that, that he wrote on the wall, uh, your birth date in the spirit that, you know, they had, they had been born into this world and, you know, Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, son, unless you're born again, you know, Nicodemus thought, how can I be born? I've been born once. How can that happen? And he was talking about spiritually, their spiritual rebirth that, um, you know, for a baby, for, you know, innocent child going directly into uh, heaven and for you writing on the wall. You were born. Yeah. And when I... My um... kingdom uh, that, that day know that you had um you truly had entered into his kingdom into your heart and the girl um that was in that church house one that i had grown up in church with that was holding hands with me and my sister um i hadn't talked to her in 20 years so i was real hesitant I was, she's gonna think i'm crazy i haven't even talked to her last time she heard i was this you know drug addict like she's probably not even gonna want to talk to me and I put it off for months after I got back. And um, finally, one day, it just got real heavy on me. And, so I, and I actually walked out of work to send the message. And I messaged her on Facebook and uh, months later. And I told her about my experience, not the whole thing, but the part that she was in. And I told her that she was in my near-death experience and that through her, you know, it led me to Christ um, and saved my life. And uh, she said, she messaged me, but it took her a while to message me back. She said, you know, uh, I didn't message you back sooner because I was, I was on my knees praying. She said, Tara, I prayed last night. And this girl had always, I mean, she was the music director's daughter. I had always looked up to her as a, as a good person. She was a good Christian strong Christian. Um, she said, Tara, I prayed last night to God and I said, you know, I've been struggling a lot spiritually. And I said, I don't even know if you're real anymore. What I'm doing all this for. She said, I was losing my faith. And I prayed to God last night. And I said, if you're real, prove it to me. Or this is the last time I'm praying. And she woke up the next day with my message. Mm. Wow. Wow. So here I was thinking that she led me, that she strengthened me spiritually when really, you know, God uses all of us and um, in crazy ways. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. He, he chooses, tends to even in the, Bi the Bible, if you look at the people he chose, those were the... Uh, the least likely they were the in many cases underdogs and those were the like the the you wouldn't choose somebody who was a murderer 
to bring the great news of Jesus Christ to the world, the Gentile world, you wouldn't choose uh, like an adulterer and a murderer, David, you know, to basically share the most, some of the most beautiful uh, in the Psalms uh, uh, record or heart, the heart of God, basically, all of those things. Um, I'm going to ask you, um, Tara, to pray for those. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a little bit differently to pray for those who need to receive Jesus as their Lord, but also to pray for those who have lost loved ones either um, through a, abortion where they've aborted their baby um, or the, and also for those who have lost their children or their loved ones to drugs, drug addiction, to be freed, freed of drug addiction, to be freed of the, the abuse or whatever caused this cycle of um, freedom and, and yeah. salvation. So would you do that for us, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Now? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> Ready? I, I threw this on you there. I, I'll do it myself, but I think it's very powerful that you, the Lord has brought you, you're that, that voice now on, on the side of God's kingdom to speak freedom and uh, salvation to those in need of that today. Yes, sir. Dear Lord, we come to you today, God, and we we ask you, Lord, that you just just knock on the hearts of those that are still in bondage tonight, Lord, and that you just show them, God, that you have compassion, that you're not angry with them, Lord, that there's nothing, nothing, nothing that is too shameful to bring to you, God, nothing, that you are our friend, Lord, you are our deliverer, you are not here to, to condemn and to punish, God, you are here because you love us, and because you want to see us free, Lord, and accept you and your deliverance in Jesus' name. God, I pray for any woman out there tonight, Lord, that struggles with decisions that they have made in regards to their bodies, Lord. Abortions, um, even adoption, Lord, anything, God, that, that brings them guilt, Lord. I want them to just lean on you, Lord, and... You can just show them, Lord, like you did in my life, God, that you can make beauty from ashes. You can make beauty from ashes, Lord, and and that you can forgive them. And that only a relationship with you, Lord, can fill that void in their hearts, Lord. And that nobody, nobody is too far away from you, God. That even if you, they make their bed in hell, Lord, you will be there. Um, Lord, uh, for anybody that watched today, Lord, and stirred their heart to their emotions, Lord, or I pray that you, you just touch their hearts, Lord, and show them the truth, Lord. I know that this experience, Lord, was not for just me, Lord, that it was for others to, as an example of your grace and your redemption, Lord. If there's anyone questioning, you know, my experience or what happened to me, Lord, I pray that you just, you pour the truth into their hearts, Lord, 
and that you use it as a doorway to open up to a relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. That was very powerful, Tara. And for those who would like to uh, reach Tara, um, you can go to randyk.org. There's a contact page. We'll make sure that your messages get to uh, Tara. Uh, for those of you who are on the premiere of this, uh, obviously we're having a, a live discussion. Um, and then um, feel free at any time. We'll be, um, uh, I, I trust, staying in touch with Tara so that, um, you know, for those who need ministering, uh, prayer. We have prayer meetings uh, that we'll, we're announcing on the site, randyk.org site, um, and praying for those in deliverance and those involved in drugs and also through uh, our grief ministry headed by uh, Sherry Briggs. And, uh, you know, we have uh, our starting uh, in the near future, a what I jokingly said to Tara, a small group, but it's a worldwide group, you know, where we're getting together real time and we're... Um, intimate group. How about that? An intimate group of uh, of the world, global intimate group. There we go. That's an oxymoron. But anyway, so thank you so much, Tara, for sharing. You. You've been very courageous. This is going to help so many people. And the great news is even if you don't meet them in this world, you'll meet them in heaven and, uh, and they'll tell you about it. So thank you again. And uh, Tara, you. you've been wonderful and inspiring and uh, courageous. And for those of you who are indeed in Christ Jesus, wow, you have a lot to look forward to because heaven is in your future. Take yes, care. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe. And if you'd like further information, go to our website at randyk.org, where our mission is simple, to share the great news of God's love.